Hello, everyone, and welcome to Flyover State Science, a podcast where two Midwestern scientists demystify the coolest science out of the middle of the country. I'm Jackie. And I'm Kelsey. And we're here to do the research so you don't have to. Welcome to episode six of Flyover State Science. In this episode, we are going to talk about the history of antibiotics and the current problem of antibiotic resistance. But first, a little administrative news to get out of the way. So we're changing up the format of our episodes a little bit, and we're planning on bringing you shorter episodes that cover a single given topic, and we're going to reserve our expert interviews for layover segments. This way we can bring you more content a little bit quicker in more bite-sized chunks for your listening enjoyment. And remember, if you have topics to suggest, we're always interested in hearing them. So visit our Facebook page or email us at flyoverstatescience at gmail.com. Visit our website, leave a comment on one of our episode posts or our blog posts, or send us an email and we will be sure to incorporate your suggestion into our episode queue. But for now, we're going to talk about antibiotics. And you can't talk about antibiotics without mentioning how relatively new in the course of human history the use of antibiotics is. In the course of 100 years, the way that humans respond to wounds has gone from every wound being potentially life-threatening to any small wound or injury to your skin being something that you almost don't even think about. You put on some antibiotic ointment, maybe a Band-Aid, and go about your day. But even 100 years ago, having a small cut from a hangnail or a piece of paper could have ended up costing you a limb or perhaps your life. And this is because of the bacteria that inhabit the world all around us. And in fact, we are actually outnumbered by bacteria. They are all over on the insides of our body and our digestive system, in our mouth. They're all over the surface of your skin and basically everything they touch. So not to freak you out, but they are literally everywhere. And usually they don't cause a huge problem, right? We coexist with bacteria usually pleasantly all the time. Exactly. They are our distant, 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 distant evolutionary cousins. And for the most part, we peacefully coexist. We create more spaces and more nutrients for them. They provide us with useful services such as assisting in our digestion and helping us make delicious things like cheeses and wines. For the most part, bacteria and humans are able to peacefully coexist. But just like anything, there are a few bad apples which ruin it for the rest of them. And there are certain bacterias, MRSA, Staph, Gonorrhea, which have all gained recent notoriety because these bacteria can not only make people very sick in a normal setting, but they have also developed a resistance to the drugs that we have that keep these bacteria at bay. But we haven't always had these drugs. Before we had ways to successfully fight off these bad bacteria, we had happy little microbiologists in their labs working on ways to prevent certain kinds of bacteria from outgrowing one another while they were doing different experiments with them. And one of these, one of these researchers was Alexander Fleming. 
And what Alexander Fleming was doing in his lab was he would put different types of bacteria on different plates, let them grow little colonies, and he would take a flask of what he called mold juice, which is a sort of viscous liquid vat of mold spores that he allowed to sort of grow out and form like a moldy fungi cocktail. And he would apply his different mold juices to different bacterial strains. And he went about his experiments for a while, noting which different kinds of mold juice were able to have an impact on bacterial growth. And you can measure this because when you put bacteria out on a plate that has enough nutrients that they can take from it and grow, bacteria will actually form these opaque little colonies, little dots. They look sort of like ink drops, almost, of like a white, sort of milky, white, yellowish ink. And when he would apply mold juice to them, usually it didn't really do a whole lot. Maybe the colony stayed the same size or got a little smaller. But with a specific kind of mold juice, Alexander Fleming noticed that colonies of a certain kind of bacteria were diminished incredibly, completely annihilated, you could even say. Now, he thought this was very exciting because he thought it was really interesting that he could find a compound in his mold juice that could cause an entire type of bacteria to be eradicated. And he did some more experiments trying to figure out what it was in the mold juice that caused this big response. He was never able, he was never successful in identifying it, but what he did call it was penicillin. And as scientists do, he thought his findings were interesting and important, so he wrote up a little paper about his discovery of penicillin as yet mister mysterious compound. And he published it with one or two sentences in there that the effectiveness of penicillin was quite strong and that it could be diluted and used on a dressing or some sort of wound bandage and still be effective because it was so potent in its effect to kill bacteria. So he published this paper in 1929 and not a whole lot really happened with the penicillin project. Alexander Fleming was unable to identify the actual molecule from the mold juice that was penicillin and he was more interested in playing with bacteria and mold juice and seeing what he could do in the lab than pushing this outside of the lab to a different implication. But he wasn't the only person who saw a potential value in penicillin. And eventually the penicillin project a few years later was picked up by two researchers named Howard Florey and Ernst Chain, who were from Oxford University. And they worked with the penicillin project for many years, working on identifying the structure and the actual molecule of penicillin from this mold juice and trying to grow it up and purify it so they had a stash of pure penicillin, no mold juice necessary, that they could use in healthcare experiments and trying to treat people who had infections. They did experiments in animals and in cultures, but... It wasn't until 1941, 12 years after Alexander Fleming's paper was published, that the first human injection of penicillin was administered by this group. And this patient who received it was having a very serious infection. He was a man who had received a wound while he was gardening. This wound had become infected and he developed sepsis, which is a systemic wide infection in the blood where the bacteria have grown out in the blood so much 
that it causes the body to shut down. He was in very bad shape. So this research group gave this man the first ever injections of penicillin. And he experienced a very serious recovery. He went from being incredibly ill to showing signs that he was becoming healthier and that the infection was subsiding. However, this isn't a happy story because they did not have enough penicillin present to be able to continue the treatment. And once they ceased the penicillin treatment, the man's condition grew worse again, and then he eventually passed away. But the fact that the man experienced such a marked recovery in response to penicillin was a proof of concept experiment that this compound, this humble mold juice compound, had the ability to not only kill bacteria living on a plate, but also seemed to kill bacteria that were infesting a human body. The problem remained in production. In 1941, as it is now even, producing large amounts of a certain molecule in the lab is incredibly time-consuming and incredibly costly. And in that time, they really didn't have the sort of machinery that you needed to be able to produce enough of this penicillin to be able to be used in a mass market healthcare system. Also, what was going on in 1941 was World War II. And the British government saw a lot of value in using penicillin on the battlefronts to be able to treat wounded soldiers and prevent them from getting infections and dying from their wounds. What they realized eventually was that they didn't have the correct resources or equipment at Oxford University to make this happen. So these researchers formed a collaboration with uh, United States space scientists and ended up working with a United States National Laboratory in order to begin massive production of penicillin. From here, the use of penicillin exploded in the healthcare scene. Things such as surgeries, which were previously only done under very, very serious conditions because of the likelihood of infection, became commonplace. You can now go into surgery for an elective surgery. The first thing that you're worried about is not that you will get an infection and die. The interesting thing about penicillin is that penicillin is an antibiotic created by mold, which is a common term for a certain form of fungus. Fungus and bacteria have sort of co-occupied the same ecological space for a long time. They're both very small microorganisms that survive on sort of similar nutrient types in similar situations. So there's a sort of ecological push and pull between bacteria want to live in the space, but so do fungi. So they sort of compete for the same resources. In nature, when you're competing, you're not just trying to be better than the other one, you're mostly trying to kill the other creature that is trying to take your resources. So bacteria and fungus tend to communicate with one another through chemical warfare. Bacteria can create a large number of compounds that will kill fungus. And funguses, in turn, can create compounds that can kill bacteria, antibiotics, or antibacterials. While they can exist in the same space peacefully, this often doesn't happen. And having these two in a similar space can cause the creation of these chemical warfare signals. And in fact, many of our antibiotics that we know and use now have come from harvesting these chemical warfare compounds. We've borrowed 
the fighting styles of fungi yes. who have been successfully fighting bacteria for much longer than we have. <laughs> and not to be outdone, we've also borrowed antifungals from bacteria because having a fungal infection is no walk in the park either. <laughs> Why reinvent the same antibiotic wheel? Exactly. It's kind of brilliant. We've observed this sort of war going on between bacteria and fungus, and we've just plucked their different weapons and decided to use them for our own purposes. However, in these spaces where bacteria and fungus coexist, there's a lot of these chemical warfare signals going back and forth. And if fungus are secreting all of these antibiotic signals into a certain environment, like the soil, for example, then this will kill off a number of bacteria who are sensitive to whatever target these chemical warfare signals are honing in on. However, eventually, if the fungus keep creating enough of a specific antibiotic, these antibiotic signals target just one thing. Sometimes they target proteins that are found in the walls of these bacteria. Sometimes they target um, ways that these bacteria produce, produce different proteins for cellular processes and can kill them. Sometimes they target the actual walls or cell membranes of the bacteria themselves and cause them just to be ripped open. But antibiotics tend to only target one thing. So if you put the fungus and the bacteria in an antibiotic-rich environment for long enough, bacteria reproduce and grow really quickly. Even if you kill a lot of bacteria, there are a few of them that will still be alive and able to reproduce. And eventually, these bacteria that are able to reproduce will eventually become desensitized to the antibiotic signals. They've somehow developed a resistance through mutation or I don't know if there's another way that they can mm -hmm. acquire it. Mutation, population mm -hmm. drift, or sometimes... Yeah, I think those are kind of the only thing. But it happens so frequently when you have millions of bugs reproducing every 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. It can happen on a very short time scale. It happens really fast and it happens and it can spread pretty quickly. So you go from having just one or two bacteria, maybe, who are not being killed by this antibiotic-rich environment to all of a sudden give it a few hours, and now you have hundreds. This sort of event, which we can call a selective event in the evolutionary setting, which means that we apply a certain stimulus that can cause organisms to either die or find a way to adapt with their environment. These bacteria adapt to their environment. And the selective pressure is the antibiotics. Mm -hmm. Now, let's zoom out from the soil and into present day 2017, where there is hand sanitizer sitting on my desk right next to my antibacterial hand soap in my kitchen, where I wash my hands wearing my antimicrobial running shirt after going outside for a nice jog. We are surrounded, even when we're not in an antiseptic environment like a hospital or a surgical room, we are surrounded by antibiotics. And that has some consequences, I imagine. It does have consequences to be surrounded by antibiotics all of the time, which means that we are basically, in our society, recreating the sort of environment that can cause bacteria to find ways to survive around the presence of antibiotics. Because, as we learned from Jurassic Park, life finds a way. And it, it's taken some time, right? Because we went from having antibiotics being prescribed to people who were very sick, 
to using them topically, like in the surgical room or maybe when pe when uh, babies are being born. Then people had the idea that maybe we could put it in soap and make soap more effective. Spoiler alert, it's not. Regular soap without antibiotics or antimicrobials works really, really, really well. We've gone from just using antibiotics in a limited number of cases to now we use it in everyday products. And in fact, we even use it so much that we have a serious abundance of antibiotics that are being administered to the animals who are being raised in agriculture. Yeah, antibiotic use in the agriculture industry is a big deal because like in the case of humans, it has very important uses in uh, maintaining the health of livestock like cows. Um, personally, I know in my extended family that they raise cattle just as kind of a hobby. And I know they give antibiotics to calves that have just been born to keep them healthy because there's a high risk of infection after the calf has been born. And that seems like a really logical use to me, but I think in a lot of the bigger industrial stockyards, there may be an excessive use of antibiotics being used on the, the livestock, and that's leading to some problems. And oftentimes in agriculture, in these sort of industrialized, large-scale settings, these antibiotics are being administered regularly as a preventative measure mm -hmm. to stop these animals from getting sick. But being exposed so frequently to antibiotics in this sort of setting is also really bad because that provides yet another environment where we are giving bacteria another opportunity to develop more resistance to mm -hmm. the limited number of antibiotics that we have because they are not unlimited. And at this point, we have discovered several antibiotics, but the role has sort of slowed. Oh, yeah. And it's not profitable right now to develop antibiotics. Mm -hmm. I mean, I go to the drugstore and pick up a prescription if I have a cold or something and they prescribe me antibiotics, and it costs less than $5. Like, antibiotics are just cheap, and so there's not a lot of pressure to develop antibiotics at the moment. Thanks, capitalism. But there is now, because there is there is a pressure, maybe it's not financial, but there is a serious need because as we have been bathing ourselves, bathing our food, bathing our surroundings in antibiotics, we as a culture have accidentally created what you might hear of as superbugs, antibiotic resistant bacteria, which is pretty scary because bacterial infections since the 1950s have been considered to be something that you can recover from if you address them in time. But now there is a growing list of, of bacteria that are resistant to most common forms of antibiotics. Now, this isn't meant to be an alarmist piece. We don't want you to think that now you should throw every single antibiotic-containing thing away. They still serve a very important purpose, but Due to their overuse and oftentimes misuse, uh, doctors prescribing antibiotics for things like viruses or colds, where antibiotics actually don't help most people get better, patients not finishing courses of antibiotics, the full course, they let they take them until they feel better, and then they stop with several days left in their antibiotic cycle, which allows more resistant bacteria to grow out. Uh, because of this, we have created a problem with resistant bacteria. There is hope. 
We have amazing researchers who are working on identifying ways that we can get around this antibiotic resistance, working on ways that we can resensitize bacteria to antibiotics that we do have, working on ways that we can prevent these resistant bacteria from spreading. Because things like gonorrhea, staph, candida, all of these infections are things that if we are left without tools to treat them, can be very, very bad for human health. <laughs> Turn back the clock a hundred years. <laughs> with a vengeance, because people have very short memories. We forget, just like with people who are against vaccines, because they don't think that things like the mumps or measles or rubella are serious, they forget because they haven't seen people who have been very, very, very sick with these things we forget because we've never seen someone have an untreatable bacterial illness. The official definition of antibiotic resistance is the ability of bacteria to resist the effect of drugs. There is a way that we can get around this, and there are certain people who are working on this, but we'd like to end this segment on antibiotic resistance with a note to simply be mindful. Your soap doesn't need to have antibiotics. Maybe have a, have a consideration before buying products that contain antimicrobials or antibiotics. Finish your Z-packs. Finish your courses of antibiotics, please. Listen to medical advice, but also be critical, be careful, and be thoughtful about it. As a society, I'm going to reiterate what my French teacher from high school always said. Everything in moderation, nothing to excess. So thank you for listening. We hope that you've learned something more about antibiotics and antibiotic resistance. We're not trying to scare anybody, but there's been a lot of hubbub in the news about drug-resistant bacteria, and being provided with more knowledge is always better than less. Thank you for tuning in to this first new format episode of Flyover State Science. We hope you'll stick with us because we have upcoming episodes on genetically modified organisms and the microbiome and a lot of other cool stuff coming your way. And we'll catch you next time.